So we're going to do three stories in one. The reason why I'm doing so is because um, after doing chapter 10 and 11, I'm going to be leaving out 12, and then 12 is going to be an episode by itself, and it made no sense to me. So I'm going to do 10 and 11 and 12 all in one episode. So without further ado, let's get started. And before we get started, let me tell you what you, I'm going to be saying this probably a lot or probably not often but again listeners discretion is advised what you're about to hear are gruesome stories that you've never been heard like never heard before or never even thought of before so please be mindful of what you're hearing and if you do not like this this is not a podcast for you so i'm gonna be seeing that quite often but not as often because sometimes I'm forgetful about the you know being like you know caution when I talk about certain topics about gruesome stories like beheading and and um torture and prostitution like all that stuff like it's it's like not really a subject or topic to even talk about to certain people so let's get started and again before I get started, if you hear me yawn or like this, uh, it is not because I am bored um, doing podcasts. It's because I am tired. I've been tired for weeks and months. And it's not because I stay up late of hours of the day, like from 10 to, to 1 o'clock. No. It's more so that I don't get enough sleep, so I go to sleep from, like, 10 o'clock to, um, what is it, 10 o'clock to 5 in the morning, like, 5.15 to let my dogs out, and then go back to sleep for about 4 hours, and then do what I gotta do in the house. So, there's that, which is basically easy what's going on. So without further ado, let's get started. So chapter 10 is called A Grizzly New Orleans Tale. So again, it's in New Orleans. So Zach Bowen grew up with, like any other normal American boy, he was a sociable, like very, like, like he was very sociable and had an average number of friends. Nothing about him made him extraordinary. For the most part, he led a normal American life, and it wasn't until he turned 18 that his life turned, like, his life turned upside down. After his 18th birthday, before he was legally allowed to drink, Zach met 28-year-old Lana Shupek in a New Orleans strip club. Though she was 10 years older than him, they dated and eventually married and had two kids together. In order to support his new family, Zach decided his best option was to join the U.S. Army. He enlisted in the 709th Military Police Battalion and was sent on a tour of duty in Cos- Can you say it correctly? It's Cosco? It's K-O-S-O-D-O. And a second one in Iraq and spending time in his Abu Ghraib. Back home, Lana sent 
and strip club photos of her and her co-workers. Though he later almost never spoke of it, Zach experienced atrocities that left him with post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. During the early days of his first tour, a member of Zach's unit, a young female friend, Rachel Bozveld, was killed during a murder attack in Baghdad. The death drained him mentally, and the once happy-go-lucky man fell into a more somber tone. Later in the in his military career, Zach became friends with a young Iraqi boy, and when the insurgents blew up the shop that the boy's family owned, Zach fell into an even deeper depression. Zach had even promote like had been promoted to sergeant, and when it was time to leave the military, his commanding officer gave a recommendation for an honorable discharge. But much of Zach's disappointment, he was given a general discharge, making him ineligible for GI Bill education benefits. In addition to his depression, Zach felt cheated for his service in the military. By the time Zach returned to New Orleans, his marriage had failed. Though they didn't divorce, he and Lana separated and Zach took a job as a bartender in the French Quarter. It was it was during that time that he met Addie Hall, who had also worked as a bartender in the trendy like in the t- trendy area of New Orleans. Addie was artistic and free-spirited. She wrote poetry and occasionally taught dance classes. She was described by her friends as a mean drunk and a wonderful person except when she wasn't. According to her friends, Addie had been molested as a child and was a victim of several abusive relationships. She also suffered from bipolar disorder. Zach and Addie moved in together and started their tumultuous relationship and both were heavy drinkers and drug users. Addie was known for her abusive temper. Together, the couple had a passion for both drinking and fighting. They were drunk or high on cocaine and Addie would easily turn a minor argument into a raging inferno. Zach and Addie became an iconic couple during Hurricane Katrina, and while the, the rest of the city had evacuated and camped out in the Louisiana Superdome, the two decided not to evacuate. They stayed in their apartment that they rented above the Voodoo Spiritual Temple, temple on the Rampart Street and drank their way through what seemed to be the end of the world. The national news media interviewed them and their story was featured in the New York Times. They seemed to thrive on the lifestyle that the hurricane brought. To them it was like a camping trip. No electricity and plenty of booze and they didn't have to work. They could drink all day and they didn't have any bills to pay. Addie could occasionally flash her breasts at passerbys just to make sure the police were able to like regularly patrolled their street in in early October 2006, a year after Hurricane Katrina. The two 28-year-olds got into one of their epic fights. Addie was convinced that Zach had been cheating on her. In October 4th, she approached the landlord of their apartment and asked to have Zach taken off the lease. Knowing that Addie's explosive temper, the landlord refused and tried to calm her down and suggested that she try to patch things up with Zach. Two weeks later, on October 17, at 8.30 p.m., 
A man looking out the window of his hotel room at the Omni Ho Royal Orleans Hotel in the French Quarter noticed a man's body on the roof of the adjacent parking garage. Police arrived to find the body of Zach Bowen face down on the roof. His body was mangled and lifeless, clearly having having died from the impact, but police were unsure if he had been pushed or he had jumped. Small cigarette burns were found all over his body, and when police searched his pockets looking for identification, sorry, I'm so tired. They found a note that said, quote, This is not accidental. I had taken my own life to pay for what I took. If you send a patrol at 826 North Rampart, you will find this dismembered corpse of my girlfriend, Addie Hall's Addie Hall, in the oven, on the stove, and in the fridge, along with full documentation on the both of us, and a full signed confession from myself. The keys to my right, the keys are in my right front pocket, are for the gates. Call Leo Watermere to let you in. Zach Bowen, end quote. When police arrived at the Rampart Street Department, the first thing they noticed was the temperature. The air conditioner was running full blast and it had been turned down to 60 degrees, presumably to slow the rate of decomposition. The walls of the apartment had been spray-painted with red paint. Quote, Please call my wife. I love her. I'm a total failure. Look in the oven. Please help, help me stop the pain. End quote. On top, like on the stove, was a pot with Addie's charted head in it. And another pot was human hands and feet in a roasted pan inside the oven contained arms and legs. All were burnt beyond recognition. Potatoes and carrots were cut up in a cutting board next to the stove. Investigators noticed what seemed to be Cajun seasoning on the limbs, but from the burnt condition of the body parts, it believed his intention was not to eat them. It's assumed that cooked the body parts in an attempt to remove the tissue from the bones for easy disposal. In a larger plastic garbage bag inside the refrigerator was a torso of Addie Hall. Addie kept a journal, and Zach had filled it in a last eight pages. And it was a confession in horrifying detail of how he killed his girlfriend, stating today, saying, like, stating today, quote, Today is Monday, um, October 16th, 2 a.m. I killed her at 1 a.m. October 5th. I am very... Like, I am very calm, like, I very calmly strang strangled her, and it was very quick. Halfway through the task, I stopped and thought about what I was doing, and the decision was half the first idea, and moved to plan B, the crime scene you see now, and came after a while, and I scared myself not only by the action of calmly strangling the woman I loved for, for one and a half years, but my entire lack of remorse. I've known forever how horrible a person I am. Ask anyone. End quote. The note mentioned that he had sex with her body several times after strangling her and would drink in the apartment with her body until he passed out. He went to work as usual, and when he got home from work, he removed her body to the bathtub and dismembered her with a handsaw and a kitchen knife. When police arrived, the bathroom had been thoroughly cleaned. 
In his suicide note, Zach also explained the samurai burns on his own body. He had burned himself one time for each year of his life as punishment for his failures. And Zach Bowen had demons of his past war experiences, and there is no place like New Orleans for a demon story. In the years afterwards, the house of 826 North Rampart became a tourist attraction, infuriating the couple's friends and family. Eight years after the murder slash suicide, a documentary was called Zack and Addie, and the film featured a woman named Margaret Sanchez. Margaret was a friend of both Zack and Addie and spoke of her relationship with the couple and of the nightmares she still had the years after. She was hypnotized. She hypnotized or hypothesized. Technically hypothesized, not hypnotized, because that makes no sense. She hypothesized that Addie may have killed herself rather than rather than Zach killing her. On June sixth, twenty twelve. Oh good lord, I was too tired. Sorry. On June sixth, twenty twelve, in a disturbing twist of the story, Margaret Sanchez and her boyfriend Terry Sparks walks into a New Orleans strip club called Stilettos and asked about getting a threesome with one of their dancers for a private party. Unable to find a willing girl, they went to another bar called Temptations. There, someone pointed them in the direction of a young girl with purple hair named Jaren Lockhart, and they told the couple she was desperate to make some money. She was indeed desperate and quickly said yes to their proposition. Jaren was seen on security cameras grabbing her belongings from the dressing room and primping herself in the mirror and then she exited the building with the couple and she was seen with the couple a few additional times on Bourbon Street security cameras and then she was never seen alive again. Jaren Lockhart dismembered body parts washed ashore days later on various beaches in Mississippi. They were mutilated areas where tattoos had been which was an attempt to hide her identity. When Shan Sanchez and Speaks were arrested, Speaks' computer had recently been wiped clean and his car reeked of cleaning products. In emails between the couple, they spoke of rare celestial phenomenon called Venus transition, when Venus passes directly in front of the sun that happened at the exact same time of the murder. Cadaver dolls reacted to the scents in the couple's backyard and shrubbery burn pile and a trash can inside the burn pile. The theaters found remnants of women's underwear and a piece, pieces of a cell phone and several parts of Jaren Lockhart's body were never recovered. During the trial, forensic pathologists explained her death and dismemberment in graphic details. Members of the jury were, were seen open openly weeping and sobbing. Terry Speaks was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to two life sentences. One day later, Margaret Sanchez pleaded guilty to manslaughter and obstruction of justice and conspiracy to obstruct justice. She was sentenced to 40 years in prison. But they never really mentioned how long Terry Speaks is going to be spending his, like, days in jail. Like, they never want to mention, like, how many years he's serving. It only says that he was convicted of second-degree murder and sentenced to two life 
sentences, nothing more. Now we move on to chapter 11, the alligator theory. At the southwest corner of Georgia, where it meets the border of Flo with Florida, the Chattanooga and the Flint River joined to form a lake, Samoli. The lake was artificially formed by Jim Woodruff Lock and Dam in the 50s. From there, the water flows 500 miles south through the Apachacola River toward the Gulf of Mexico. The shallow water was full of stumps from trees that were there before the lake was formed. The stumps created problems for the boaters that used the lake for fishing and duck hunting, but that didn't discourage the 31-year-old Mike Williams. Every chance he got, he would make the 50-mile drive from Tallahassee, Florida to go to his favorite duck hunting spots. Mike got his first taste of duck hunting when he was 15. In high school, Mike was a jock. He was a star football player, student body president, and, an, and was active in Key Club. If you don't know what Key Club is, it's basically um, a club where you do community service. I've actually one time did an orientation, not did an orientation, but attended an orientation of it, and I, I'm not saying I completely, like, wanted to join it, I just wanted to see what the hell it was, and I stand by what, what they do, Key Club, I understand what, like, what Key Club does, but I, I cannot devote my time and effort into doing Key Club. So that's why I went to an orientation of it, like, first time around, and that was basically it, and I stopped going. And North Florida Christian School was also where he met the love of his life, Dennis Morell. Well, technically, Denise. Denise Morell. It's like Jenny's, but Denise. Who was a cheerleader at the same school. Denise and Mike dated and after high school Mike went on to Florida State University in Tallahassee where he majored in political science and urban planning. If people do political science I applaud you because I don't understand it to its finest point whatsoever so I applaud you for doing that. He worked his way through college as a property appraiser where his boss Clay Ketchum said that he was the hardest working man I ever saw. Mike and Denise married in 1984 and in 1999 had a baby daughter named Ainsley and by 2000 Mike had built a real estate business and was making over $200,000 a year. December 16, 2000 was a special day for Mike and Denise. It was their sixth wedding anniversary. They had plans to celebrate their evening, but Mike wanted to start the day with a quick trip through to the lake for some duck hunting. It was mid-December and very cold and stormy, but he was determined to get some hunting in. Mike woke up early and grabbed his gear, loaded up his Ford Bronco, and to towed his boat out to Lake Samol before dawn. Leaving that early morning, Mike should have been at home long before noon, but when he hadn't returned home that afternoon, Denise was frantic. 
Mike wasn't answering his cell phone, so she called her father, who then called Mike's best friend, Brian Winchester. Together, the two men drove to Lake Samoa late that afternoon to look at, to look for Mike. And when they arrived at the boat launch, where he usually parked his Bronco, was nowhere to be found. They searched the area, and just before nightfall, they found his Bronco and boat trailer parked 75 yards away at a muddy boat launch that he normally would never use. It would have been very unlike Mike to park where his normal boat launch was available. As darkness fell, the wind picked up and the temperature dropped at 19 degrees. The wind and pouring rain made a further search impossible, so they waited until morning. The next day, Denise's father, Brian Winchester, and the fish and game department continued their search for Mike. The morning they found Mike's boat was 300 yards from the boat launch. Strangely, strangely, it was 300 yards in the opposite direction that the strong winds had blown that night. Inside the boat was a shotgun still in its case, though it wasn't the shotgun that Mike normally used for duck hunting. It also found hunting equipment and duck decoys. There was but there was no sign of Mike. Searchers assumed that Mike's boat may have hit a stump in the lake and that he had thrown like he had been thrown overboard from his hip wider boots on and the divers was sent to search the murky lake. Helicopters scoured the lake from the skies and hundreds of man hours were put in by several law enforcement agencies. Days turned into weeks, and weeks turned into months, but Mike had simply vanished. Because the lake was filled with stumps and his hip waders were missing, law enforcement assumed Mike had fallen overboard and drowned. His boots had more, most likely filled with water and pulled him under. The lake was also known for being alligator-infested, and it was believed that after he drowned, he had been eaten by alligators. The case was treated like a missing persons case. Six months later, a hunting cap was found floating on the surface of the water. Police thought it might have belonged to Mike Williams and sent divers into the area. And in the same area, they found his hunting vest, his still working flashlight, his hunting license, and a pair of hip waders. In the state of Florida, a missing person can only be declared deceased if only they're missing for five years. But only eight days after Mike's belongings were found in the lake, Denise Williams successfully petitioned the state to have his death certificate issued. With the valid death certificate, she was now able to collect Mike's two life insurance policies totaling to $1,500,000. So, yeah, and this was 2000, so I don't know how much that is in today's currency. If you search it up in today's currency, it's probably going to be a lot more than that. And as years went by, Mike's mother, Cheryl Ann Williams, wasn't buying the, the whole accidental death theory. She had several gaping holes, she, like she saw several gaping holes in the official story and started her own investigation. Cheryl wanted a criminal investigation to open into his disappearance, but Mike's widow, Denise, threatened to cut off access to his granddaughter, Ainsley, if she did. Ultimately, 
Sharon lost access with her granddaughter and pursued the death of her son. The first thing that stood out to Cheryl was none of the items found six months later after Mike's disappearance seemed like they had been submerged in for six months. The hat and jacket were pristine and free of mud and out or algae. The hip waiter boots had no teeth marks, nothing to indicate an alligator attack. Even his hunting license was still legible after spending supposed six months in the murky lake. She also contacted alligator experts who supplied her with important fact. Alligators don't feed in temperatures below 40 degrees. They go into a state called burmation. Similar to hibernation, alligators become lethargic and their metabolism slows down significantly. They dig themselves into a bank of the lake and go dormant until the weather gets warmer. The temperatures when Mike disappeared, like when he disappeared in December, were well below freezing and there was no possibility that he could have been eaten by alligators. Additionally, alligators don't eat people whole. When alligators do attack humans, they bite, chew, and tear the bodies. There was always pieces left to be found and in the history of Lake Samoa, there had been a total of 80 deaths there. Mike's death would have been the only had been the only one in which a body had not been found. There were other inconsistencies Cheryl found. Mike's boat was full of gasoline when it was found. If he had fallen out of the boat while it was running, the boat's motor was designed to circle endlessly until it ran out of gas. Mike's friends also verified that he would never have worn his hip waders while driving the boat. He would only put them on once he reached a hunting spot. The most significant sign for Mike's mother was the fact that his widow, Denise, was issued a death certificate after six months and awarded the life insurance claim. There were two policies, one for $1 million written for just six months before he vanished and an insurance agent had sold him the policy was his best friend, Brian Winchester. Five years after Mike's disappearance, Brian Winchester and Denise Williams were married. This solidified Cheryl Williams' lake suspicions. Mike Williams was not in that lake and she knew it. She spent years trying to get investigators to take a second look at the case. Every Sunday, Cheryl would be found in Bradfordville finding like holding a giant missing sign on the side of the road and hoping that someone might see its face and remember something she took up donations and paid up like paid for huge billboard signs flyers posters and websites nothing seemed to help cheryl never gave up she sent over 240 letters to the then governor of florida rick scott Every single letter went unanswered. She regularly placed full-page ads in Tallahassee Democratic newspaper. An open letter to Governor Rick, um, Governor Rick Scott read, Dear Rick Scott, 15 years ago today, December 16, 2000, my son, Mike Williams, supposedly drowned in Lake Samoa, Smeeds, Florida, while on the solo duck hunting trip. After a two-week search of the lake, 
Mike's body was never found. I was told by Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission's officers that my son fell out of his boat and drowned and eaten by alligators. Governor Scott, there's only one problem. Alligators do not eat in cold weather. They hibernate. They, it would have been physiologically impossible for an alligator to eat anything much less than 5'10 and 180-pound man. Mike, who was declared dead six months after his disappearance, when planted evidence surfaced in the lake. His wife collected millions of dollars in life insurance and then married his best friend. It took me three and a half years to get criminal investigation into Mike's disappearance. Because of this investigation, I lost access of his daughter. FDLE had the lead investigating agency since, like has been the leading investigating agency since February 2004. I still do not know what happened to my son. His cause, like not his cause, but his case is now considered an active cold case. Nothing is being done to find Mike or his murderers. In May 2012, a fa- in a face-to-face meeting in front of, the, of a witness, I was told by FDLE investigator Ms. Williams, you no longer have, invest- have an investigation because you do not do things the right way. In other words, Governor Scott, I talk too much. Governor Scott, I have written a letter to you every day since you took office. You do not see my letters because they were sent over to FDLE, the very agency I am complaining about. Governor Scott, would you please appoint a special prosecutor from another part of the state to investigate my son's disappearance? As a parent yourself, can you imagine the undying agony of not knowing where your daughters are for the past 15 years while simultaneously being lied to, ignored, and being called lazy by law enforcement officials when the facts clearly prove otherwise? Please help me find my son, Cheryl Williams." End quote. Cheryl's efforts fell on deaf ears, when she nev- but she never gave up hope. By 2016, the marriage between Denise and Brian Winchester was falling apart. Things had begun to sour in 2012 due to Brian's sex addiction, and Denise filed for divorce in 2016. On August 5, 2016, just before the divorce was being finalized, Winchester told a friend that he thought the police were after him, and that once she div- that like once she div- like she divorced like like once she was divorced he was convinced that she would quote unquote say something about this guy who died ten or twelve or fifteen years ago end quote Brian Winchester hid in the back of his wife's car and waited for her to arrive and when she got into the driver's seat she felt the gun barrel jammed in her side as she climbed over the seat. Winchester grabbed her phone and told her to drive, and he told her that be- that because she had blocked his text and refused to take his calls, and he had no choice. He held her against her will for over an hour until she finally pulled into a drugstore parking lot and parked next to the front door. He threatened he threatened suicide if she divorced him, telling her he had nothing to live for. Eventually, she talked him down and agreed not to tell. The police he had kidnapped her after he released her brian apologized for what he had done and she drove straight to the police station brian winchester was arrested for kidnapping domestic assault and armed ro- and armed burglary 
Two of the charges were felonies and Denise asked for a restraining order and claimed she was so distraught she hadn't been able to eat or sleep for weeks. Winchester was held without bond and Mike's mother was elated of the news of Brian and Denise's breakup and after 16 years it gave her new hope that she might be able to find out what happened to her son saying quote Brian Brian's not going to let Denise run around alone with all that money and I'm praying he doesn't commit suicide and I'm praying he'll tell us what actually happened end quote so continuing on she added that she was alone among her family holding out hope that her son was still alive Brian Winchester sat in jail for over a year waiting trial and during the trial the prosecuting attorney told the media that he hoped that the case would help solve the disappearance of Mike Williams but there was no mention of Mike at all during the court proceedings. Finally, December 2017, Winchester was sentenced to 20 years in prison for kidnapping plus an another 15 years for uh, probation. The day following Brian's sentence, the Florida Department of Lake of Law Enforcement called a press conference and they found the body of Mike Williams. After 17 years, Mike Williams' remains were found buried at the end of a dead end road just five miles where he grew up 40 miles from Lake Simone and the body was actually been discovered two months earlier in October as part of a plea deal they waited until after Brian Winchester's sentencing to announce it Florida Department of Law Enforcement brought 30 workers to the area to work 16 hour days for five days without even telling the workers what they were looking for the search was to be kept confidential and workers were told it was a training ex exercise the work involved digging nine foot deep holes with a backhoe and building dams pumping water to keep the nearby murky car lake from destroying their work investigators searched through the massive tracks of mud and found 90 percent of Mike Williams' bones. DNA from the bones matched that of his mother. On May 8, 2018, Denise Williams was arrested as she was on her way to her daughter's 19th birthday. She was charged with first-degree murder, conspiracy to commit first-degree murder, and accessory after the fact. Remaining details were kept confidential until court. Prosecutors argued that Denise Williams conspired with Brian Winchester to kill her husband as early as nine months before his death. <coughs> Sorry. I'm choking on my own spit. At court, prosecutors played um, the audio recording of the police interview with Brian Winchester after his kidnapping arrest. Brian confessed to killing Mike Williams in cold blood but claimed the whole thing was Denise's idea. Brian Winchester took the stand to testify against Denise when he told the court he had been having a relationship with Denise ever since high school. They both married other people but continued their affair off and on and frequently double dated with their spouses. He explained in 1987 their affair snowballed and they began 
a steady affair for the first three years of Mike's life. Winchester explained that because of Denise's religion, her family would never forgive her for her divorce. Instead, she plotted to kill her husband. Denise suggested several methods of getting rid of him, such as faking a boating accident in the Gulf of Mexico for both for both her husband and Brian's wife, Kathy, but Brian didn't want his children to grow up without their mother. Other ideas involved a robbery at Mike's work, but they eventually, they eventually agreed to make it look like a hunting accident. Sorry, hold on, I had to drink water. Otherwise I would have died without water throat is like literally dry. I don't know why. I think it's because I'm talking non-stop. Hold on. Let me breathe and drink some water. Okay. Sorry. That was so much ASMR. My bad. On the day he disappeared, Brian invited Mike to Lake Samold for a morning of duck hunting and once they were out, on the water, Brian waited until Mike put on his hip waiter boots and pushed him out on the boat, assuming he would sink to the bottom. But Mike didn't sink. He held on to the tree stump, and Brian pushed, like, finished the job by circling the stump on the boat and shooting Mike in the face with a shotgun. With a shotgun blast to the face, the story of a boating accident wouldn't work. Winchester then pulled Mike's body out of the lake left the boot and le left the boat and belongings and drove 40 miles away to bury Mike's body near Carl Lake. There was no physical evidence in linking Dennis Williams to the murder, but that didn't stop the jury room from coming back with a guilty verdict on all charges. The following February, Denise was sentenced to life in prison. Cheryl Williams addressed the media only to say that justice has finally been served. Denise was allowed to sign over remainder of the insurance money to their daughter, Ainsley, in order to avoid prosecution for insurance fraud. As a part of the agreement, no part of the insurance money was to be used for Denise's legal defense. But it never said how many years she's going to be serving in jail, so we don't know how many years she's going to be serving or if she had maybe 24 or 26 or 30 years or 40 years or 50 years or 60 years to life in prison. We don't know. But that is the end of the alligator theory of chapter 11. Now we're going to move on to chapter 12, the Calicio monster. So without further ado, let's get started on chapter 12, the Calicio monster. The Cavicio is a mountain plateau city of a little over 20,000 inhabitants, which is people. Throughout the years, the area was changed hands, um, changed hands many times, once belonging to the Byzantines, and then conquered by the Ottomans, Serbia, Yugoslavia, and now called Macedonia. Not much happens in Keshko. It, it's a halfway point between the capital and the fancy resorts on Lake or Orid. Other than a pit stop, 
it's not much of a reason to stop in a slow-paced town. Though the area has been its share of welfare throughout the centuries, it's generally not a place that has been known for violent crime. Daily Kashko was, was mundane and boring. Nothing much happened, and that was newsworthy. That was until three women between the ages of 56 and 65 were beaten, raped, and strangled from 2005 and 2008. The slangs were exciting new for Vlado um, Tuniski. He was a middle, a mild-mannered journalist in his early 50s, frustrated with the lack of reportable news in the area and news of the brutal murders kept local residents riveted to the newspaper and Tuniski's articles that covered them. He seemed to have an uncanny any inside knowledge of the murders and extreme eye for detail that kept residents buying papers. Vlado Tedeschi was born in 1952 and raised in Kashko to parents who were very strict conservative disciplinarians. And when his oldest brother left home, his parents disowned him and never spoke to him again. And they did the same to his older sister. Vlado's father was a World War II veteran who worked as a security officer while his mother was a custodian at a local hospital. Both were extremely strict parents who often took a belt to their children whenever they misbehaved. Vlado attended technical school, like technical high school, and after graduating took a job at a local factory. He was active in a local communist youth program which allowed him to travel to central Croatia to attend political school where he attended journalism. Well, he not attended journalism, but studied journalism. In 1973, Vlado met his future wife at a poetry reading. He was 21 and she was 19, and they both shared a love for literature. And after four years of dating, the couple married and soon had two boys. And by the time his family returned to Cash Cove in 1980, Vlado was more educated than most people in the city and factory work was beneath him. His wife had finished her law degree, and he initially worked at Radio Keshko, then advanced his career to become a journalist, and he was a staff reporter for Nova Makedonia, New Macedonia, the largest daily newspaper in Macedonia, based in the capital city of Kajopi. Though his father was a loner, he had a tumultuous relationship with his mother, Vlado moved his parents in with him and his family. Vlado's father later recalled saying, quote, his mother took his young her younger son's abandonment very hard and then daughter Trajanka went to work in Kajopi. And Vlado was the only child in the household left to take care of his parents. So when I married him like this is what Vlado's wife said, so when I married him, we both decided to stay and live with them." End quote. Over time, Tuneski became a very talented writer, and besides, like besides his journalistic writings, he also wrote poetry, short, short stories, and several novels. As technology progressed, he remained nostalgic, longing for the long, the lo- um, like longing for the old days of commun- commun- I think it's communism as opposed to capitalism and preferred like preferring a typewriter and paper over computers. Living in a small town outside of the capital and his perchance no pension for
for nostalgia. Both took a toll on his career, and Vlado was passed up for many articles. He was assigned to cover stories taking place in his, like, his own small town. It's such a quiet town. They didn't have, or they didn't leave much. In 2003, his full-time staff position at the newspaper had been eliminated and Ganaski had worked as a freelancer selling a story whenever he could. Though his parents lived in his home, Ganaski's father spent much of his time alone at his family's summer cottage several miles away, and in August that year, he hung, he hanged himself in the cabin. And just four months later, his mother accidentally overdosed on sleeping pills. Ganaski's life reached a low point, but journalistic work was suddenly about to pick up and catch Cope. November, like in November 2004, a 61-year-old retired custodian, Maitra Simjanoska, had gone missing. Like missing. Oh my God, I keep doing that. Had gone miss. Had gone missing. She lived in the same neighborhood where Tanaski had spent his entire life, and he covered the story for the newspaper. The theories swirled throughout the town about Mintra's disappearance, and she was known to have many lovers. Had she, had she made a man jealous? Did she run off with someone? And in January 2005, the townspeople received some answers. As a man was looking through an abandoned construction site, he came across the body of a woman in a large nylon nylon bag, and she had been dumped naked in a shallow hole in the ground. Though Maitra had gone for had been gone for two months, her body showed only a few weeks of decomposition, and she had obviously been kept alive somewhere. She had been raped, strangled, and her hands and feet were bound with a telephone cord. Police were quick to find suspects. Just a month earlier, in a nearby village in Moketsk, or Mel. An elderly man had been robbed, raped, and murdered. The killers had tortured him by placing objects in his anus and took heated fireplace tongs on his penis, and two men in their 20s were charged with the murders. Because of the killings, the old man was similar to Matra's death and their involvement in extreme torture. The two men were charged with her murder as well, and they pleaded guilty for killing the old man but insisted they had nothing to do with the killing of Maitra Simjoneska. In Vlado Tanesky's article titled Surgical Gloves for the Monstrous Murder, he wrote, quote, In handcuffs and with the searching eyes, 28-year-old Antti Rzeszewski and his friend Igor Merseski, accused of horrible double homicide in Kaskov and Melkett walked into the courtroom and they stared vacantly at the ceiling and from time to time whispered as if as if to themselves and it's all over and now we'll pay and now we'll pay for their crimes unquote the two young men were tried convicted and sentenced to life behind bars but there were still unanswered questions nature's body was found with traces of semen, but the DNA from the semen didn't match either of the men sitting in jail for the time. Later that year, to make ends meet, Tineski's wife took a job with the Ministry of Education in Kajopi, 
70 miles away, and she moved to Kajopi and took her youngest son with her while the eldest son went abroad to study. Tanaski had spent his life with a house full of family and found himself completely alone. He took the time to start using a computer for work and often spoke of selling the two Cash Cove homes, but that never happened. In November 2007, another woman from Cash Cove, Lobashanka Lokaska, went missing. Like Mitra, Lobashanka was just a custodian, an older woman, and coincidentally lived in the same neighborhood as Tuneski. Lobashanka's body was found three months later near a gas station. She had been subjected to some the seeming types of torture. She was found wrapped in a plastic bag, bound with a telephone cord, and had been raped and strangled. Pathologists determined that the body had been dead for several days, and she had been missing for three months. Again, this meant that she had been kept alive somewhere and endured three months of rape and torture. When the people of Kashkov realized that the similarities between Labashanka and Maitra, rumors started to swirl that the two men that were locked up may not have been the killers. People also pieced together similarities to the older case, predating the others. Another elderly woman had gone missing in May 2003, like Matria and Lobashanka. Gloria Pelovsky was a 73-year-old retired cleaner who also lived in the same neighborhood, and when she went missing, most people thought she had possibly gone to work in Kajopi, but now there were rumors that three cases were linked, and on February 6, 2008, Tineski's story was the top story in the Morning Herald, saying, quote, Rumors abound. While the police were working on the case, the majority of people in Kachkov think that this murder is related to the double homicide and Mel kept in Kachkov. While other, when two older citizens were killed for very small sum of money, end quote. Tineski also speculated that Lubashanka had been hit by a car and rather than the driver taking her to the hospital, he had decided to kidnap her and torture her. He reported, quote, the Kashko police, police have not announced a suspect yet, but according to the to our resources, the investigation is on its way to solving the case, end quote. Just three months later, another body was found, and Zalva Telemaska was a 65-year-old custodian at a local school, Again, she was from the same neighborhood as Tanaski and the other victims with the same profession. Zanava's body was found near a soccer field on top of a trash heap. Her body was placed inside a plastic bag, wearing only her nightgown. She had been savagely raped and bound with a telephone cord and strangled. Zaniva had five broken ribs, 13 cuts in her skull, and she had been raped with a glass bottle and several other items, including a, vi- a viral of aftershave and cotton balls and gauze. Like Matria, pathologists were able to retrieve semen from her body, and Tineski had interviewed police, detectives, and neighbors, and the victim's family members, and his front page article read on May 19th said, 
hooked the people on Cash Cove. Sorry, hold on. I'm trying to read all this. Hold on. Okay, sorry. Just saying. Um, the people of Keshko live in fear after another butchered body had been found in the town. The corpse of the strongly um, resembles one discovered of 20 kilometers outside of Keshko last year, and there is a possibility that these monstrous murders are, are the work of a serial killer. Both women were tortured and murdered of the same fashion, which ruled out the possibility that there had been two killers. The Orchard serial killer murdered three people in 2007, but his victims are all street-based money exchangers, and his motive was to rob them. The motive of the Keshko monster remains unclear. Both women were friends and living in the same part of town. Police have few suspects who were who they are interrogating. The latest body was found in a rubbish dump and had been tied up with a piece of phone cable with which the woman have clearly been previously strangled. Officials from the Ministry of Interior said that they have several suspects, all of them from Keshkov, and they were interrogated and released. There is confirmation that traces from the murderers have been found on both victims and those are now being analyzed." Unquote. Realizing they have a serial killer on their hands, police developed a psychological profile of the killer. The murderers were all planned well and the killer showed an extreme amount of control. Their profile showed that the killer was likely a strong middle-aged man with above-average intellect and they also believed that he was sexually frustrated and most likely since childhood. And from the killings, they knew that he was sexually frustrated had grown into sadomachism. Mesochism, sadomasochism. They, they also believed, which is from BDSM, they also believed that the killer acted alone. Next to Zaniva's body, police found an old jersey from the blood traces on it, and the blood type was B positive, not hers. The police interviewed over 150 men and eventually narrowed the list of men down, and their next step was to test them for DNA that could match the semen samples. One of the suspects was Lado Tanesky himself. Lado was had known all the victims. They all knew his mother and worked as cleaners, but just as his mother had. But the thing that caught police's attention was his articles published in a newspaper. Tanesky seemed to have information about the killings that had not been released to the public. Specifically, he reported the telephone cord that was used to bind Zaniva was also used to strangle her. Based on his knowledge of this information, Tanesky was arrested on June 20, 2008. After his arrest, independent forensic labs confirmed that his DNA matched the semen that was found on two of the victims. They also confirmed that they found seven hairs near Lavashanka's body that belonged to Tedeschi, and the old jersey found near Zaniva's body belonged to him, and the green nightgown that she was wearing belonged to Tedeschi's mother, suggesting that he dressed the victims as his mother before raping and kidnapping them. When police searched his house, the summer cottage, they found one of the victims' clothing. During more than 20 hours of interrogation, Tanesky was mostly silent. The questions he did answer were most vague claims that he couldn't recall.
Due to the lack of space, Tineski was transferred to the jail in a nearby town of Tetibo and was placed in a cell with three other inmates. The cell had two bunk beds and a separate bathroom. Inside the bathroom was a large white bucket. At 2 a.m. on June 23rd, one of the cellmates alerted guards when they found Tineski on the bathroom floor. His head was in the bucket in the water and his hands were to his sides. The guards tried to revive him, but Tineski was pronounced dead. Inside his pockets were three items, a round-trip train ticket to Kajopi, where he had purchased before he was arrested, several pills from antidepressant Paxil, and a note and a signed note that says, I have a note under my pillow on my bed. The note under the, his pillow was a suicide note proclaiming his innocence, saying, I have not killed the woman. I am proud of my family. The sudden death of Tanaski left more questions than answers, and the ability to hold one's head in the bucket long enough to drown is nearly impossible. But his body... showed no defensive wounds that would indicate he was forced into the bucket and there was no signs of a struggle. Conspiracy theories of the case spread throughout Macedonia. Was he the victim of waterboarding or the police protecting the real killer? His military record shows his blood type was O positive, which was different to the blood found on the old jersey. Ultimately, there was no motive for the police or other cellmates to want him dead. The police want wanted him to seem tried in court. The only person to benefit from Tineski's death was Tineski himself by avoiding a lifetime in jail. And that is the case of the Keshkobe monster of chapter 12. Now we're going to move on to True Crime Case Histories Volume 5 and that we're going to hear some interesting stories. That one, um, there's a story of an Amish man tortured um, tormented the threat of hell and had killed his wife because he thought that she was a devil and there's also a Roman Catholic priest that ri ritualistically butchered a nun and stabbed an upside down cross into her chest and anointed her with her own blood and then there is a story that you read about a young intelligent man that would rather kill his entire family with a crossbow than tell his girlfriend he had been lying to her. You also hear about a suburban housewife that endured 30 years of abusive relationship before smashing her husband's skull with a hammer. And then three stories in the volume will take place in Washington State, in one which a young girl ran away from her Seattle home in 1970s. For 30 years, her parents believed she was a victim of Ted Bundy until the real killer was finally caught. Another sexual sadist fancied himself a werewolf when he stalked and butchered his prey in an unspeakable ways. And that is going to be in the next chapter. So in the next one, we're going to hear about the homeschooler, which is chapter 1 of volume 5. And then we're also going to hear... Chapter 2, The Submarine Case. That is it for today. I hope you guys enjoy these three chapters. And have a great day. I'll speak to you guys more in the next chapter. Bye-bye.